You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. An IoT botnet hurricane may be forming among IP cameras. IP cameras are to DDoS what the West African coast is to Atlantic tropical depressions. Sophocy rushes to exploit a patched flash bug in a use-it-or-lose-it espionage race. Want to spy on someone? Go buy an ad. Cisco patches the Wi-Fi crack. Not Petya's still costing manufacturers and their insurers a lot of money. Malware Tech, a.k.a. Marcus Hutchins, gets to take off that GPS and stay out late, since the judge decided his pre-trial behavior has been pretty good. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 20th, 2017. Reports warn breathlessly that a new Internet of Things botnet is shaping up into a kind of cyber hurricane, and indeed the reports do look, metaphorically, like Atlantic tropical storm season warnings of a depression forming off the West African coast. In this case, the early storm warnings are being sounded by researchers at security firm Checkpoint, who say the coming distributed denial-of-service wave could be worse than the earlier big IoT botnet Mirai. They say they see some possible connections with and similarities to Mirai, but on the whole they regard this new, so far unnamed threat as an entirely new and far more sophisticated campaign. The botmasters have concentrated on herding IP cameras, which of course also figured prominently in the original Mirai. Checkpoint says that more than a million organizations have been affected. They noted the problem shaping up late last month, and they advise everyone to get out the virtual equivalents of plywood, bottled water, and other storm necessities. We hear a lot about zero days, of course, but not all exploitation is of hitherto unknown vulnerabilities. Security company Proofpoint reports a campaign that's pursuing a bug that was swatted this Monday. In this case, it's the Adobe Flash vulnerability, CVE 2017-11292. Researchers at Proofpoint say they're seeing a great deal of activity on the part of APT-28, the Russian threat actor also known as Sophocy, targeting the flaw for exploitation before enterprises get around to applying the patch. The vector is a familiar one, a maliciously crafted Word document corrupted with dealerschoice.b, Sophocy's attack framework that enables them to load exploit code on demand from one of their command and control servers. The fishbait dangling the malware is a document describing how North Korea says it was pushed into pursuing its nuclear weapons program by a terrorist United States. 
The bait could appeal to gullible fish of various sympathies. On the one hand, it unmasks the U.S. as terroristic, but on the other, it calls Pyongyang tyrannical and makes liberal use of scare quotes around the more outrageous claims. So whether you're a follower of Mr. Kim or President Trump, don't bite. So it seems this is a case of a Russian intelligence service threat actor working to get as much as it can in the wild before the world gets around to applying the patch. It's interesting to note that on Monday, Kaspersky connected exploitation of the flaw to Black Oasis, an advanced persistent threat distinct from Sophocy. Proofpoint thinks Sophocy also has the exploit and is trying to use it before patching renders it worthless. University of Washington researchers demonstrate how third-party attackers can exploit smartphone apps' targeted advertising systems to conduct surveillance of users. How can they do it? Easy. They buy an ad that contains within it code that lets them, say, use geolocation to know where their target is or what they're browsing for on the device. It costs about $1,000. Sure, there may be other ways of doing it, and black market malware is commoditized enough that you might get more bang for your 1000 bucks elsewhere, but it's still a possibility worth considering. Cisco joins the ranks of vendors who have patched against the crack WPA2 vulnerability. Others will follow. It will take some time to mop this vulnerability up. Facebook draws adverse attention from those concerned with information operations and security. The social media giant says it's working to secure itself, a painful process, they say, and promises to help secure upcoming Canadian elections. Fairly or unfairly, suspicion of Kaspersky products as being the Russian FSB's royal road into the enterprise has taken a firm root in the commercial sector, Data centers are being advised to get rid of the company's security software, and editorialists in the U.S. are telling consumers that they should do likewise. NATO leaders feel unsure of their ability to counter Russian hybrid warfare and fear losing the battlefield advantage they've tended to assume as their right since the end of the Cold War. The cost of NotPetya pseudo-ransomware continues to be counted, Verisk estimates that Merck's insurers will pay out some $275 million, with the big pharma company itself on the hook for more. And finally, Marcus Hutchins, the hacker known as Malwaretech, credited as a kind of inadvertent hero for flipping the kill switch on WannaCry pseudo-ransomware, is out on bail and unencumbered awaiting trial. He's living and working in Los Angeles, part of that city's large British expatriate community, where a U.S. judge thinks he's behaved well enough, showing up in court as required, and so on, to deserve having his curfew lifted. He can also take off that GPS tracker he was wearing. Mr. Hutchins was arrested in August on U.S. federal charges, alleging that he created and sold Kronos malware. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. 
In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the Director of Analysis at Terbium Labs. Emily, welcome back. Um, you know, after all of this Equifax mess, uh, one of the other credit companies has been uh, sort of tooting their own horn and saying that they will search the dark web to find out uh, anything about you. And there's been a lot of pushback on that. People have been saying, well, you can't search the dark web. That's why it's called the dark web. Um, this is a specialty of yours and your uh, colleagues at Terbium, so I thought, who better to ask than you? If I want to go out and um, engage with a company and, and say, I want to find out everything there is to know about me on the dark web, how possible is that really? It's certainly possible in that, as you said, uh, we do this for a living at Terbium. Right. Um, depending on... Uh, which company you're talking to, whether as an individual, you know, you mentioned, you know, one of these credit organizations is offering a dark web scan, or if as a company, you're kind of looking at different providers, it's absolutely possible, depending on who you're talking to, you're going to get different kinds of information, whether you're looking uh, for financial information, whether you're looking for more threat intel, whether you're looking for personal information, Mm -hmm. in the case of the individuals uh, who are kind of turning to this this credit organization, uh, it's certainly possible it's definitely difficult. I mean, that's one of the engineering challenges we all face, right, in this space is uh, the dark web is a difficult thing to navigate. Sites go up and down. Many of these sites don't particularly want to be found. And so doing reliable data collection at scale on this part of the internet, it's it's definitely difficult, but it is certainly possible. And, and so this is sort of the, the secret sauce that various companies have if they are, if they, when they're telling you that they can do dark web scans. Absolutely. And it really does depend on who you're turning to and what problem you're trying to solve because companies are trying to solve this problem differently and companies are looking for different kinds of information. So you could be looking for more threat intel information about threat actors. You could be looking for information about vulnerabilities that may impact your company. In the situations like you're discussing, you're typically looking for more personal information or financial information. And that kind of information is out there, whether it's something that's been discussed or that's been leaked or that's available for sale. And it's also important to note that not all of this is on the dark web. Plenty of this information shows up on, you know, really sketchy clear websites too. The fraud trade isn't exclusively on what we think of as traditionally the dark web. 
So this notion that uh, we can't scan the dark web because it's the dark web and that's why they call it the dark web, uh, that's sort of a myth. It is sort of a myth. And that's, you know, one of my favorite things to talk about with people in and out of the industry is the fact that the dark web is complex and it changes constantly and it's messy, just like the rest of the Internet. But it is a problem that you can approach and that you can figure out how to solve. It's a difficult problem. That's why many of us are working very hard to figure out how to solve it. But it's definitely something that is measurable and tractable and accessible. And you can track data there. All right. Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Michael Sutton. He's the Chief Information Security Officer at Zscaler. Prior to Zscaler, he helped build some other security startups, including SPI Dynamics, who were later acquired by Hewlett-Packard, and iDefense, which was later acquired by VeriSign. Michael Sutton is also the co-author of the book Fuzzing, Brute Force Vulnerability Discovery. Our conversation centers on zero days, bug bounties, and whether the U.S. government is following their own guidelines when it comes to zero-day hoarding. In the early days, let's say 20 years ago, it was really underground or government entities that would be willing to pay for vulnerabilities. So there was no sort of open marketplace. That started to change in about 2002. I actually, at the time, um, was part of the first sort of commercial organization to start a bug bounty vulnerability program, which at the time was super controversial. But since then, it's evolved and it's become a very normal commercial process. There are lots of companies that will pay for vulnerabilities, and it's now very normal that most vendors will pay for vulnerability information. So that's really evolved. But there has always been an element of hoarding in that, uh, whether it's governments, whether it's criminals, anybody that wants to use a vulnerability for an offensive purpose. And I suppose these days, the notion of having a bug bounty isn't really controversial anymore. No, I remember. So I had mentioned that we had launched the first commercial one that was with a startup called iDefense at the time. We did it in 2002. We called it the Vulnerability Contributor Program. And I remember at the time there were people who were just vehemently opposed to it. You know, we believed very strongly in it. We had insight into the fact that, hey, this is happening in the underground. Wouldn't you rather have this um, out in the open? And we felt that, hey, it was much better for us to do this uh, very publicly out in the open. We gave everything to the vendors to get it fixed. Over the past 15 years, I think attitudes have changed dramatically. You know, now it is a very regular business. There are companies that specialize in bug bounties. Um, Pretty much every major software vendor or internet provider has a bug bounty program. They pay for it. So it's actually quite satisfying to see, you know, all of these people who had their pitchforks out against us um, have really changed their mind on this topic. 
it seems as though the controversy has stirred up again uh, with organizations like the Shadow Brokers releasing uh, vulnerabilities that uh, allegedly have been hoarded by government agencies. Yeah, so throughout this entire time, there has always been hoarding, um, certainly not just by the U.S. government. I mean, most governments have some sort of offensive cyber capability. And yes, they want to use vulnerabilities for their offensive purposes. Now, that's where I think the controversy comes into play, because, of course, there's always a delicate balance to strike there that you may be hoarding it for the benefit of your country. But if your citizens, companies in your uh, nation are also impacted by somebody else using that same vulnerability, are you doing more harm than good by hoarding? So where do you think it's going to go? The U.S. does actually have a, a policy in place to make that decision. They, they call it the vulnerability equities process. So we're not in a situation where if the United States government comes into the possession of a vulnerability, either through their own research or because they purchase it from another party and both of those things occur, that they simply hoard it outright or even have the ability. There are different players, different agencies get get invited to the table. Um, that process has evolved over time. And supposedly, the process is designed to lean in the direction of, hey, we're going to disclose this to the vendor unless we can prove certain things um, and that we don't feel there's a large risk to the public. Unfortunately, as with most government policies, especially those that involve sensitive information, there's very little transparency. So we in the general public are left to make evaluations based on leaks that have occurred or uh, snippets of uh, you know, statements that are made off the record to decide if this process actually works. And, and I'd say at best, we're left to question whether the, the VP, the vulnerability equities process, uh, meets its true intent. So I think it leaves the general public with perhaps a sense of uncertainty. Indeed. There isn't much out there. There have been some reports. Uh, Jay Healy um, had done an excellent one with some grad students at, I believe, Columbia University, where he sort of compiled uh, what information was available. And so, you know, we're left in a position where, where the government has told us that, hey, this process is in place. We know the broad strokes of how it works. Um, we know that the intent is to disclose vulnerabilities, zero-day vulnerabilities, especially in situations where they pose a risk to the public, meaning that they are either high-risk vulnerabilities or they're broadly used within the infrastructure of the United States. The problem is that some of the anecdotal evidence that we have, shadow brokers being a really important one, that you know here was a leak of a treasure trove of NSA tools, and we're left to say, wait a minute, uh, it was very clear that th the fact that these were hoarded did not um, tied to the intent of the VEP. You know, these were vulnerabilities that impacted a huge portion of the computers and the infrastructure in the United States, e Eternal Blue being a big part of that, which was the vulnerability that was used with WannaCry and NotPetya. If the intent of the VEP was to make sure that we don't hoard vulnerabilities that could have a very negative impact because they're high risk and widely used, well, clearly the NSA should have disclosed these to the vendor. So 
that leaves us with big question marks. You know, we don't have the transparency to truly know how the VEP works. We don't, we certainly don't know the vulnerabilities that have gone through the VEP vetting process. So we are left to question how effective this process truly is. Do you think there needs to be an evolution of the way that these vulnerabilities are disclosed? Well, I think we have seen an evolution, and I think that this is continually revisited. Um, you know, there's been an evolution just overall. Like, as I mentioned, back in the 15 years ago, people just couldn't wrap their head around paying somebody for a vulnerability, and vendors were vehemently opposed. I, I remember when Microsoft finally launched its bug bounty program a few years ago, I was shocked and very pleased because they were a strong holdout. Like when we launched that vulnerability contributor program, they were one that begrudgingly worked with us and they were actually good. They really did do a 180, but you know, they did, they wanted people to just give vulnerabilities to vendors. That was their view. They said, we're never launching a bug bounty program. And so they did. So I think, I think the general public has really evolved and now this is a very accepted piece of it. But even at the government level, we've certainly seen evolution. Like the whole concept of the VEP actually started um, within the Bush administration, George W. Bush. Back then it was solely run by the NSA, chaired by the NSA, and they seemed to have kind of full say over it. And, and it has been reinvigorated or was reinvigorated under the Obama administration to, to change the process. It's no longer directly chaired by the NSA. It seems to have uh, broader participation. So I think the government has also evolved as they've seen things occur, some of the major events where hoarded vulnerabilities cause damage, whether it was shadow brokers or even things like uh, Heartbleed which was an open SSL vulnerability that was arguably the most damaging or the highest risk vulnerability that we've ever seen that had the greatest impact. And there were rumors that the NSA had known about that for a couple of years before, never verified. But I think it was moments like that that caused the government to say, hmm, maybe by hoarding vulnerabilities, we're doing more damage than good. I think this will be an ongoing debate both publicly and within the government. I, I think it will have to evolve. I don't think there is ever going to be one right answer. That's Michael Sutton from Zscaler. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.